title of the message this morning is Grace Through Incarnation. As you can probably tell, we're passing the fun stuff around at home as well. Um, So hopefully the voice will hang on till the end. If not, maybe that's a good thing. I, I might get a little loud sometimes, so. Grace through incarnation. Last week we looked at grace through prophecy, and, and really incarnation is in and of itself a fulfillment of prophecy. The word incarnation is talking about Christ taking on flesh. In the flesh, incarnation. The idea that God would take on flesh in the person of of Jesus Christ. You know, this is something that we think about a lot uh, during this time of year, but probably not a whole lot outside of this time of year. Um, We believe that Jesus is God. We believe all these things about Jesus. We believe what he did for us, but we don't often focus on this concept of the incarnation until we come to Christmas. Then all of a sudden it's like it smacks us in the forehead again. You know, oh yeah, that's right. Um, That is a a miraculous thing, isn't it? (laughs) That God would become man. And so we're going to look at the impact of the incarnation this morning here in Hebrews chapter number two. The big idea for us this morning is this, that in order to produce the perfect sacrifice capable of redeeming fallen man, God's plan of redemption required the incarnation. Let me say that again. In order to produce the perfect sacrifice capable of redeeming fallen man, God's plan of redemption required incarnation. Just as we did with Galatians a few weeks ago, we'll take a a second here just to quickly update us on where we are in the book of Hebrews as normally we would be going through this uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I'm just kind of diving right here in the middle of a of a lot of context. So I just want to very quickly talk about that context so we understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And I apologize if I happen to slip and say Paul um, when I'm talking about Hebrews. It's just, a, it's just a slip of the tongue. We don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure, um, but Paul wrote half of the New Testament. So it's kind of just kind of, it's a natural tendency. So forgive me if I happen to say Paul. <clears throat> But here in the book of Hebrews, one of the main goals of Hebrews is to glorify and and lift high Jesus Christ. For us to understand the significance of Christ in, in many different aspects. He compares him to Melchizedek. He compares him to Moses. He compares him to the priests. He compares him even to angels. And uh, so far in the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, he's, he's introduced Jesus Christ as, as God. And he's introduced him as the creating God. The one through whom all things were made. The one to whom all things were given by the Father. And, uh, and he brings in this idea here in the beginning of chapter 2 that Christ is greater than the angels. He's not just some other angelic being. He's, he's greater than them. He's higher than them because he is God. But not just because he is God, but also because he is man. Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the one who redeems mankind from their sin. 
Hebrews chapter 2, we jump into our passage here. I gave you a little bit more context than we'll cover, um, but we'll jump into verse number 14. Starting verse 14, it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, power of death, that, he, that is, the devil. Let's focus on that first part. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Who are these children that Hebrews is talking about? These children are the children of God. If you look up just another verse ahead, it says, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is um, speaking of Christ saying these things. And these, these children are the children of God, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And so, and it says, since therefore the children, it's talking about those who are believers, those who will be redeemed. Those are the children of God because they share in flesh and blood. There's a lot of schism in the world of humankind today. There's schism over wealth and poverty. There's schism over color of skin. There's schism over nation against nation. But there's one thing that all of us have in common. Actually, it's more than one. But one of the main things all of us have in common is we all share in flesh and blood. We all bleed red. This, the color of the flesh may differ from one person to another, but we all have the flesh and of course, with that, we know in Romans that because of that, we all have sin as well. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, because we have this common binding element of flesh and blood, it says that he himself likewise partook of the same things. If we were to be redeemed, we needed to be redeemed through someone who is like us. We needed someone like us, someone who shares in our struggle, someone who shares in our flesh and blood and our humanity. And that is the grace that we celebrate this morning through the incarnation. The word, the name for Christ that we focus on this morning is Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. We get that from Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. It says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is not the only time we get this concept of God becoming man, God partaking in flesh. We read Philippians chapter 2 already this morning. And of course, Eric preached on that just a few weeks ago in the book of Philippians. John chapter 1, though, also says this, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This, these first three verses use the pronoun Him, not it. Him because the Word is a person. And we see who that person is in verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, as we 
continue this Advent series looking at the coming Christ, looking at the one who will be born as a baby in Bethlehem, we are reminded of this reality, this doctrinal truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that God chose for that incarnation to take place through a miraculous means called the virgin birth. The virgin birth was fully an act of God. It had nothing to do with Mary. It wasn't, wasn't her choice to be the one through whom Jesus Christ would be born. It was God's choosing. She didn't earn it in any way. She received favor from God. The virgin birth was a miraculous act. Those of you who know your biology, it takes two, right? A mother and a father. And in fact, if you think about it, it's an even more miraculous act because Jesus was a male. He wasn't a clone of Mary. He was a male. And that requires a father to get a male. And and God miraculously formed Jesus Christ's body in Mary's womb. It was a miraculous act. The virgin birth provided a real human. Have you thought about that reality? The virgin birth provided a real human. He was fully flesh and blood, just like we are. The virgin birth is kind of a window into something that really is incomprehensible. I think one of the reasons why God used the virgin birth is to help us understand something that's hard to understand. We can sort of wrap our minds around God doing something miraculous through birth. But if he had done it another way, maybe it would have been harder for us to grasp, harder for us to even believe that God would have become man. We won't take the time to delve into all the details and possibilities and and arguments around the virgin birth this morning. I want to focus on the incarnation itself. On Christ being both God and man. Fully God and fully man. And this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, I see four graces that are given to us, that are provided to us by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The first grace that I see is the incarnation provided deliverance through death. The incarnation provided deliverance through death. Again, verse 14, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I think it's important that we don't miss that word through death. Through death. Death is the consequence of sin. We know that our bodies will die because of sin. That's one of the, the punishments from, uh, from Genesis chapter 3. But it's also the payment for sin. It's also the required payment for atonement that we see throughout the Old Testament. It's interesting, even in the garden, God made garments of sins, uh, garments of animal skins for Adam and Eve after they had sinned. And after he had pronounced their, their punishment, he, he, makes anim, he makes garments out of animal skins for them. And could God have miraculously just created animal skins? Yeah, but the Bible doesn't tell us this. I, this is my personal feeling, all right? So don't write this down. My personal feeling is 
he probably killed some animals. I think even the first sin were covered by death, by bloodshed. And from that point on, sins, offerings bring, bring, being brought to God were brought through the shedding of blood. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who are drawing near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since otherwise they... Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But these, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Did you catch that? And the sacrifice of those animals was a reminder of sins every year. Because those animals could not take away. They could not provide atonement for man's sin. Hebrews 9, 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant of God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Romans 6.10, for the death he died, speaking of Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. We've already looked at Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, so I won't read it again. But the blood of animals was not sufficient to take away the sins of mankind. We needed a human sacrifice. We needed a, a perfect, spotless human being to die. The incarnation is a grace to us because it provides the opportunity for death. For the perfect death. Not only for death, but that death had a purpose to destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Satan was the instigator of sin in the garden. We know that he tempted Eve. Um, the Bible doesn't say that Adam was tempted. It says that he chose. But he was right there. Surely he heard what was going on says that he was there with Eve at the time. But Adam chose to sin, chose to give in to that temptation provided by Satan. And Satan from the very beginning has been tempting mankind to sin. How's that? All right. That's good because my voice is going to go. <laughs> Do you look at the lost world around you and see them as people who are not just enslaved to their own desires and sin, but under the power of the wicked one? Is that how you see them? As people who need to be delivered? That's what scripture says. And that's why the incarnation is important. Jesus came as a man so that he could go through death to destroy the power of Satan over lost mankind. But he also came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject 
to lifelong slavery. Not just slavery to Satan, but slavery, slavery to sin. We've read these many times. Ephesians, Romans chapter 6 is a very familiar passage talking about our relationship with sin because of our relationship with Christ. How we no longer under the power of sin because we are one with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Verse six, verses six through seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. A little bit further down, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself Member, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but are under grace. Sin no longer has dominion over us because of Christ. Because of the law of grace. Verses 17 through 18, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. We needed someone to set us free. John chapter eight, Jesus' own words, starting in verse 31, says this, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I think they're forgetting about 400 years there, but we'll let it be. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Are you getting the reality of our lost condition? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Later on, he's going to call them children of Satan. We were lost and enslaved to sin. The blood of animals, of goats and sheep and oxen could never take away could never break those chains, could never set us free from the captivity. So why is this grace, why is this incarnation a grace for us? Because as fallen men, we have no power to save ourselves. There is no righteous act we can do to break the chains. We can't even die for ourselves because that's our punishment. Our punishment is death. So we can't even die for ourselves to take away, to break away from this sin and Satan. But one has died in our place. Because of the incarnation, Jesus Christ could die for us. He could be the perfect sacrifice. 
So my question this morning is, have you been freed? Have you been freed from the bondage to sin and to Satan? Do you, do you even know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Or do you just continue to do the things that you desire to do, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us? Do you continue to live in sin and misery? Seeking after your own desires, following after the things that you want? Or have you been freed by Jesus Christ? And, and if you are here this morning and you have been freed, are you living like it? Are you living like free people? That's what Romans 6 is talking about. It's saying you have been freed because of Jesus Christ. So now walk as if you are freed. Don't, don't let sin have dominion over you anymore. Live unto God. Be slaves to righteousness. Because you have been freed. Is that the way that you're living? Are you living in the light of the incarnation as it's provided a death that gives us freedom. The incarnation also provides fulfillment of promises. Eric talked about this last week, but it's kind of in the next verse here. Hebrews chapter two, verse 16 says this, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, again, this is, um, this is in reference to what he was talking about before, right? He's, he's referencing angels again and talking about how Christ is greater than angels, but yet even in his sacrifice, his sacrifice was not there to save angels. It was not there to, to, um, to bring them back to God. We know that they were, there was a rebellion in heaven before time began, as much as we can tell. And... Satan and a third of the angels were cast out. And there's nothing in Scripture that says they will ever have an opportunity to be, re to be redeemed. So Christ did not come to rescue angels who were fallen. In fact, he wouldn't have needed to be born as a human if he was going to do that. Angels are spiritual beings. They're not, they're not physical beings. And so the incarnation has nothing to do with, with angels or, or helping them in any way, but rather there's a purpose for it. And that purpose was to rescue the offspring of Abraham. We see this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses one through three. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him whom dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That last phrase is the one that we particularly find hope in, is it not? Through you will all the families of the earth be blessed. It was through Abraham that the coming Messiah would be born. Through his line, all the way from Abraham down through David, through the kingly line, down to Mary. It's interesting that uh, the Jews in that passage in John 8, you know, they pulled this trump card, right? We are the sons of Abraham. John 8, 39 through 41, they answered him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They try to ratchet it up even, early, even, even higher. Well, not Abraham. We are, we are children of God. We are his chosen people. The Jewish hope was in the law. It was, it was in the line of, of Abraham. The physical line of Abraham. That's where they found their hope. Yet Jesus points out that, that they are not following. They're not doing the acts that Abraham would do. They were not true children of Abraham. Yes, they may be, they may be descendants of Abraham. They may have the flesh and blood of Abraham, but they were not true descendants of Abraham. Romans chapter 4 Verses 13 through 17 says this, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul in Romans there is, is hearkening back to this promise of Abraham and he says that Abraham is the father of us all. How? Through faith. Through faith. Galatians chapter 3, 27 through 29, we looked at a couple of weeks ago. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The incarnation provided fulfillment of promises. And, and oftentimes we look at that and we see those fulfillment of promises just as a, as, a, as a Jewish thing. But do you understand the grace that that is for us? The promise fulfilled to Abraham is a promise fulfilled to us who have faith in Jesus Christ, because we are now in the line of Abraham. The incarnation provides propitiation for sin. Don't you just love that word? Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, he starts off here reminding us that he had to be made like his brother in every respect. He had to be human. This is why we say he's fully God and fully man. He had to be like us. He had to be a human in order to do the things that were required of him to take away our sins. He had to be like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. 
This author is going to mention this concept of high priest and of priests multiple times later on in this book. As he compares Christ and his sacrifice to those being made by the priest, to the, both the office of the high priest as well as the acts of the high priest. The high priest is the one who would go before God one time a year and would offer the sacrifice atoning for all of the sins of all the people once a year. That one time of year is the only time he was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies to come before God. He had to be purified in every way in order to do that. This was an extremely important position in the redemptive reality of the Israelites. And here the writer of Hebrews gives Jesus Christ this name of a merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's a greater high priest. Verse, chapter four, verses 14 through 16 says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As the great high priest, Jesus offered up the perfect sacrifice. Every high priest before him could only offer sacrifices that did nothing. Every year they would do it. The other sacrifices were, were given daily for sins of the people individually over and over and over again. And yet Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest, first of all, because he offers the perfect sacrifice. He offers the perfect sacrifice for us, just as the high priest did in the Old Testament. Jesus stands before God and offers to him, himself. He offers the lamb without blemish. It says that he is able to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest because of the incarnation. Because he knows us. He knows what it is like to go through the things that we go through. He knows what it is like to struggle, to go through heartache and sickness. He knows what it is like to be tempted. Because of that, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Why does he make this sacrifice? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation simply means the appeasement of the wrath of God. The appeasement of the wrath of God. 
Translators still like to use this word for some reason, but the appeasement of God's wrath. Again, we, we don't think about this all the time. It's not, a, it's not a fun thing to think about. But as sinners, we are under the wrath of God. And we will one day face the wrath of God for all of eternity. Unless we believe in Jesus Christ because he has made that perfect sacrifice. And and it wasn't just a random sacrifice. It was a sacrifice to not only pay a debt, but to appease the wrath of God. You think about that. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, the wrath of God is not on you because of Christ. Because of the incarnation. If Jesus had not come as a man, he could not be this faithful high priest. Romans 3, 21 through 26 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as as an appeasement of his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The justice of God requires a blood sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. Think about this. God is the justifier of us. He appeased his own wrath by sending Christ. Again, something we could never do. Because Jesus was born in a manger 2,000 years ago, we now can live at peace. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We are justified before God because Jesus Christ could be that perfect sacrifice through the incarnation. Love... It's interesting, you know, John, 1 John 4, 10 says this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Love is this, that God provided the sacrifice to appease his own wrath for us through the incarnation of Christ. That's love. We have all these ideas of love. And we pull a lot of them from different scriptures and things like that. But that is ultimate love. That is ultimate love, that God would provide the sacrifice necessary to appease his own wrath. That's what the incarnation does for us. Fourthly, the incarnation provided sacrifice without sin. We've hinted at this 
already so far, but he makes it a little bit clearer here in verse 18. He says, for because he himself has suffered when, he, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this word tempted could also mean tried. Um, it's not just the idea of being tempted to sin, but I think it's included um, in that. So Jesus went through suffering and trials and also with that temptation. Have you ever been tempted to sin when you're going through trials and struggles? To sin and, and maybe question God? I think of Job and his wife. And his wife says to Job, man, just, just curse God and die. <laughs> it's not worth it. It's not worth trying to, trying to live right. I mean, you're in pain. This is, this, is, this is enough. Just get it over with. And the Bible says that in all these things, Job did not sin with his mouth. <clears throat> We are sinners before a perfect and just and holy God, and he requires just as much from us. But because we have sinned, we have been put under his wrath, and we need a perfect sacrifice. Not just any sacrifice would do, not just any man would do. It had to be a perfect man. And Jesus was that perfect man who had never sinned. John 8, 46 Jesus is speaking again in that same chapter we looked at before. It says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? They knew that he was not a sinner. They were constantly trying to trip him up on the words that he would say, on the things that he would teach, trying to find some fault in Jesus. Not even Pilate could find fault in him. In John 19, verse four, it says, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate saw that he was innocent. Even the centurion standing beneath the cross as Christ gave up the ghost in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, said this, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, surely, certainly, this man was innocent. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we've already read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Because of this, because of this reality of his sinlessness, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what we're going through. From the very beginning, the atonement sacrifices always required a spotless animal. Without blemish, without broken bones, without any issues at all, they had to be perfect if they were to be brought to God as a sacrifice, and so it is with our sin. Our perfect sacrifice is Jesus Christ. First John 3, 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He can take away sin because he has no sin. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. 
Are you thankful for that great exchange this morning? The incarnation makes possible a sacrifice for Jesus Christ to be fully man like us, to be a sacrifice, but to be fully God as well and never once sin. To be the perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with precious, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter later on in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24 says this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sins, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who, just, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Why is the incarnation grace for us? We, the ones stained by sin, could never offer a sacrifice that would atone for our sins, let alone anyone else's. But because Jesus is sinless, because he is human, fully God and fully man, his death could atone for our sins. Are you thankful for that this morning? This is not just a doctrine that we agree about, that Jesus came to earth and he was in the flesh, that he was fully God and fully man. This is not just a doctrinal issue. This is a living out your life issue. Because Jesus was incarnate. He was man and God. He was the perfect sacrifice. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, we are redeemed. Because we are redeemed, we can follow in his footsteps through the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we have the opportunity to remember this reality. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we have the opportunity to think back on that sacrifice. To think back on the reality of Christ, the God-man, coming to earth. Yes, in that little manger that we think about on Christmas. But he was born to die a purpose and that purpose of coming in the flesh that purpose of the incarnation was to free us from the bondage to sin and Satan to redeem us to fulfill the, the prophecy that had been given to Abraham to become that perfect high priest that could offer the perfect sacrifice to be able to live a life sinlessly perfectly both to redeem us and to save us, but to give us an example of how we are to live. I don't know about you, but sometimes I do look at Christ and, and I think, well, he was perfect. I, I can't live like that. He was perfect. But yet we have...
the Holy Spirit living within us. That's what Peter's talking about there. He says, he says that we are to emulate Christ because Christ suffered so now he can help us when we're tempted. Do you easily give in to temptation? Do you easily find yourself wandering back to the selfish path? Do you easily find yourself just seeking after the things that you desire? Or has Christ's death made an impact in your life? Has Christ's sacrifice made an impact in your life? Not just in this area of salvation, but every day as we live and as we walk, do we live in the reality of the necessity of the incarnation of Christ? If not, maybe we need to think about it again. Father, we thank you that you have given us Jesus Christ. Who even though he was in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God. But yet he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, the form of man. He became obedient to death so that he would be raised to life and so that through that we could die to sin and we could be raised to life to live in a way that we never could without your power. Father, we thank you for that reality this morning. We thank you for the grace that is given to us because of the incarnation. Lord, may we never forget it. May we never become so familiar with it that it means nothing to us anymore. May we be always in awe and wonder of what you have done in becoming man and sacrificing yourself for us. And may we live in a way that glorifies you because of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.